Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. My guest today is an author, an educator, a social activist, and an army veteran. Throughout her long career, she's offered motivation and empowerment to many people through her writing, her motivational speaking, and her advocacy. Today, we're going to be talking about her journey of being a black woman in America, how she's paving the way to change narratives, and her new children's book series, Brown Girl and Brown Boy. Dr. Pamela Gurley, welcome to the show. Hey, good, good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Of course. And, you know, you have such an interesting life and journey and (laughs) reading more about you and all that you've created and accomplished was really inspiring. And one of the things I noticed that you are really passionate about is breaking down stereotypes that really plague the black community, but even more specifically stereotypes that plague black women, which I'm sure we could talk about that the entire time. Um, But you have this book out called I'm Not Your Stereotype, which I love the title of that book. And the focus is really put in a spotlight on what it's been like being a black woman in America. So I would love for you to just detail kind of what your journey has been and what the themes are in that book and some of the topics that you hit on. Wow, you know, it's so weird because that book was my first, (laughs) my first published book, my, well, a solo project uh, that I worked on. And it really manifested from me being, starting out being a child, you know, and I think this is one of the things that led to me deciding to write children's books as well. But that book particularly was me just having enough, just like, after I got to a place of healing and I'm looking at the world and I'm traveling and I'm seeing how I'm treated in other places and I'm seeing how I'm being treated here, it reminded me of growing up where we are socialized to feel like we have to fit in. You Mm -hmm. have to fit in somewhere. And that broke me as a child, not really fitting in because my hair was curly or because I did not talk black uh you know i didn't subscribe i guess to black movies or black shows and it wasn't that i didn't watch it because i did i was just very cultured in everything that i watched yeah and the fact that i can sing every song that came on the radio and it it was just hard so when i i have biracial nieces and then i have nieces on all you know of the color spectrums from light skin to dark skin and i didn't want them to feel the way that i felt growing up so when i wrote that book i started it out of me being a child and where i started to understand what race and discrimination looks like coming from our own kind yeah and that's why i said you know i am not a stereotype because as i've grown up almost like any black woman you deal with your your aggressive or in conversations that i have that black women are bitter and that we are all of these things that we are not but we are also all of these things that every race of woman you know are yeah so i I wanted to put emphasis on debunking all of these stereotypes and why you know i have a chapter in there well i would say this i initially started out with my journey but i also talked about not just the toxic traits that i had because of the way that i i thought about myself i even talk about me excelling professionally but being broken personally Mm. and what that healing cycle looked like coming out and then i talk about my perspective and my thoughts on just being a black woman so i talk about the trauma of the big chop that nobody really talks about and i i accidentally did the big chop 
So I went and had a haircut and the haircut was really cute, but I didn't know about shrinkage mm. and, sh- and shrinkage is real. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and so when I washed my hair and I literally could not even curl it, like I couldn't even put a curling iron around it because it was just so, and I was like, Oh, and I went to a, I went through a place of like, I don't, I, I don't love myself. Oh my God. I wish I had my hair back. But instead of, and I don't wear wigs or weaves. And so what I did was forced myself to not braid my hair up when I couldn't anyway. Um, just learn to love that part of me. And so every day that I started looking in the mirror, I was like, oh, I kind of, I'm, I'm liking this look. I'm liking this look. But it was so traumatizing that I had to learn how to love myself again. Mm. Because there are some really beautiful women out here with short hair. And it made me wonder, I wonder if they were traumatized when they first did that big chop. Because no one ties emotions yes. to it. They just say, you should love yourself and all of this. But whew. It was it was traumatic. It is. And I want to I want to kind of wrap on that a little bit, because as you're saying that it, it, it reminds me just how much we as black women are conditioned to think that there is a specific beauty standard. And I oh, think yeah. that that's why it is traumatizing because we are automatically it's from the beginning, you know, since we're little girls, when you see dolls, you see dolls with long, beautiful hair that honestly fits more into the European standards of beauty. So we think that we have to assimilate to that. So when we chop our hair off and we have that kinky, curly, forcey texture, there is this lack of self-love and lack of I'm beautiful because that's not what we're showed is beautiful from, you know, from jump, you know? And so it's really hard. So I love that you kind of key into the trauma of that because even you saying that in that moment I didn't even connect make that connection until you said it oh yeah it was important for me to address that because I had not really seen it I've seen so many videos of of people you know growing their hair out and all of these doing beautiful twist outs and all of those things and hair and I this is going to sound so crazy so I love like people with 4C hair because they're twist outs. Oh my gosh. Let me just tell you are gorgeous. And so I wanted to twist out so bad, but here I didn't realize that people twist out to get to this. And I was like, wait a minute. And you know, my hair is already curly. It's really curly, but the twist outs are so pretty. So, you know, you have people who have, um, and I hate typecasting hair because that's one of the things I talk about. Hair is beautiful no matter what it looks like. And so I I had that discussion that I still don't really understand the typecasting of hair. I know a lot of people that have 4C hair only because you see a lot of that. But I don't really really understand the purpose of why we have to typecast our hair. Mm. Hair should be extremely beautiful regardless. I don't know of a white standard that typecast their hair. But black people have to typecast their hair to make it fit yeah or to make it acceptable and i don't like that yeah and so i just feel like hair is hair and it's all beautiful whether it's kinky coily curly you know straight it doesn't really matter and and that's one of the things that i wanted to shine light on uh and i also talk about when i was when i did the transition and the big chop and i was growing my natural hair out that people treated me differently Mm. So, the you know, it wasn't as if I was more as personable 
as when I had my hair straight. But I made sure that I did not straighten my hair and because I wanted people to get used to it. I said, you have to be the change you want to see. If you give people what they want, then that's the beauty standard that they associate with you. And I said, I'm just not going to do it. So even right now, I'm, I'm dying to know how long my hair is by blowing it out. But as I'm promoting my kids book, I I have to to be that change to show that this is what I love. This is this is my beauty standard. Yes. And and I absolutely love it. Good for you. I do love this shift that is happening with black women to own their beauty and own their natural state, because for so long, as I mentioned, We've been to othered and we've been told that how we are is not beautiful. I mean, and I, I mentioned this on the podcast before, but just a couple of years ago, I think they outlawed discrimination against natural hair, which is crazy that it was even a thing, right? To tell people they can't wear locks or have a fro. The natural hair that grows out of your head is not professional. Why is that? You know? So mm-hmm. I, I love this movement that's happening that we're like, no, this is how God made me and this is how I'm gonna look. <laughs> oh yes, I I a hundred percent agree. We have to stop, you know, perpetuating the stereotype that straight hair or long hair down our back is that beauty standard yeah. because it's not. Yep. And if, if we continue to straighten our hair, burn our hair out, relax our hair, instead of learning how to manage what God has given us, yes, we it's, it's hard to move forward, especially it's hard for people to accept mm-hmm. because I still have gotten, um, oh, if I'm going to do a photo shoot with previous PRs, I think your hair would be great if you press it out. It's like pump your brakes. Not happening. Not happening. <laughs> not not, not happening. Standing up for that. Not That's happening. Great. I I would rather. You know, they say all money's not good money. And so for me, if it goes against my brand and and what I feel and what I'm convicted about, which is embracing who I am naturally, I don't want it. And there's no it. and there and there's no price. There's no price on that for me because then i feel like you're trying to change me into something that i am not for a standard that i don't accept amen you know another thing that you mentioned was how you were treated when you went into other countries and i'd love to know your experience because i don't know if you saw the quincy jones documentary but he mentioned how he felt like a stranger in his own home often Whenever he would go overseas, he was treated the way that he felt he deserved to be treated. But anytime he came back to the United States, being Quincy Jones, he still felt like a stranger in his own home. So I'd love to know what your experience has been like traveling the world as a black woman. I have had some extremely great experiences. Now, Africa is a little unique because Africa really still does. Um, they have still have a lot of colorism. You know, so I've had some issues with some women there based off of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I have never had an issue anywhere from Singapore to Malaysia to, uh, you know, even going through Qatar and with, you know, South Africa. People have been so receptive. London never had an issue in London. And so I've always felt extremely embraced, even in Dubai, I felt extremely embraced. And then I come here and it's just so different. Yeah. It's, 
it's extremely different. And I'll give a good example. I was not long on this uh, show and I was talking about equity and equality and what that really meant and, and tying it to oppression. And there's a white woman on there in the comments. And normally I very seldom respond back to negative comments, but she, she had, she owed her, she, she deserved one. <laughs> and she mentioned, well, because she did. So she mentioned that, First of all, she called me. She said that lady is um, is wrong in what she's saying. So, mm. um, and I'm just paraphrasing. But she said uh, something about me not being oppressed. She's not oppressed. So I had to. I was like, OK, I'm going to have to clap back on this one because yeah. I said first first it's Dr. Pamela Gurley, not that lady. Yes. Get that straight. Second, I said, what does oppression look like? I said, because even the wealthy are oppressed. Money and I said the wealthy, which I am not, are oppressed. You know, you have a situation with Quincy Jones, who has all of this money, and yet comes to his own country and still faces levels of oppression. Oprah Winfrey still faces level of oppression. So we have to get out of our heads that no matter how much money somebody makes, there are still layers of oppression that is very present for black and brown people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that people use different versions of black excellence and black exceptionalism as their arguing point to prove that oppression and racism don't exist. And I mean, even you, you brought up Oprah and it makes me think of the situation when she, I think she was in either in Switzerland or Sweden, but she was just dressed in just regular casual clothes. They didn't recognize her. And she went in to buy a purse. I don't know if you remember this situation. Mm -hmm. Yes. And they said, oh, we don't think you can afford this. Oprah, Oprah could buy the whole store. <laughs> okay. <Yes. laughs> she could buy the whole store, but people don't understand that when even though you are wealthy, rich, whatever the case may be, the color of your skin is the first thing that people will always see. And that is something that white people do not have to deal with. They just don't. That's correct. That's a different level of privilege for them. 100%. And that's when you go into the conversation about white privilege. It's not about that white people don't have struggles. They don't have hard times. They don't have to work hard for things. It's that race is not a factor in the, any of those problems in your life. Race is just not that a factor. Correct. So Absolutely. I love that you're putting a spotlight on, on those things. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the angry black woman myth because it is, I know, I know. And we can roll our eyes and sigh about it because it's so frustrating. And I actually wrote a blog about this uh, not too long ago, but saying that, you know what? I am an angry black woman. And I explained the reason why is because if you had to deal with the kind of microaggressions and commentary and consistent pushback from people, wouldn't you be angry too? <laughs> you know yeah. and i and i worded it that way in that sense like I, i'm always dealing with these comments about who i am as a person and if you even flipped it for example I, you know i run a business for example being the head of a business, you're going to be authoritative. You're going to talk to people that work for you a certain way if you want to get a job done. But as a black woman, when you do those things, it's automatically that switch is turned on that you're angry, that you're bossy, that you're rude, that you're mean. But if you flipped it and put a white man in that position, he's just the boss. He's a leader. He's doing the right thing, right? So what are situations for you been like where you've experienced those kind of comments and those kind of microaggressions that just assumed you to be that way because I know that you run businesses as well you're an author you're a speaker so there's no way that you haven't <laughs> run into those situations in your career 
So I will say we need to change the way that we see things. I am not an angry black woman. Even if I get angry, I'm yeah. not an angry black woman. Yeah. I'm yeah. human. I am human. 100%. No one, no one ever calls a white man who has been angry for centuries. For no reason. Mind centuries. <laughs> but yes. Angry, uh, angry white man. Yeah, but because I choose to be assertive in what I say, stand my ground, advocate for myself. I'm considered angry. Yeah. I'm I'm considered angry because I'm not tolerant to disrespect. I'm not tolerant to allow you just to talk to me any way that you want. It's if, it, if a black man says it, then it has to be real. And so mm. that's why I said we need to change the conversations that we are having in our community because those same conversations, if they are negatively shedding light on us, is what resonate outside. And that's how other cultures see us. Yeah. And I think that's, but I also say that Black women are the most resilient. And so it makes us the most hated because it's hard to really keep a, a black woman down. It is. We don't go. Well, we, we internalize a lot, but we need to normalize that black women are normal and it's OK not to be strong. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be if, if, if I have to be a black woman and strong at the same time, take one of them from me. Change, you know, take take strong because I love my, I love my black skin or brown skin and I don't want to have to carry the weight on the world and, and feel like I don't have a right to have my weak moments yeah. that I don't have a right to fail at anything that yeah. I don't have a right to show my emotions. I don't have a right to cry. Now nah, take all that away. I'd rush. I'm, I'm a human being at the end of the day that yes. have that's filled with emotions that's filled with all types of feelings that is not always okay. And so no matter how strong we are, we need to normalize checking on those people who are strong. Yeah. Because we carry the weight and we don't want it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> we don't want it. But sometimes, sure. but sometimes life doesn't give us a choice but to have yeah. it. Yeah. Completely agree. And just kind of going off of you saying, you know, I have the right to feel these things, that that's really was the the core of what I was saying in, in, in the sense of like, yeah, I'm an angry black woman. I don't subscribe to that title, but my point was that I have a right to be upset when these things happen to me. And I think like when you said I'm human, that's exactly what it is. Everybody feels these things. Women that get, you know, uh, you know, assault, you talked about men talking to you at a bar and then you're not interested. White women get, you know, talked to and hit on all the time. They're not being pegged as angry. But you would have a right to be upset if a man kept bothering you when you said no, you know. So it is this weird, it's this weird perception of black women that when we emote anything, <laughs> that it's elevated for some reason when it really is the same level of emotion that everybody else is, is you know, exuding. It's really, I don't like it. <laughs> I, really I know don't. it's multiplied by like 50. It really is. <laughs> Everything we do is multiplied by 50. And it makes no sense because everybody else would respond the exact same way. And they don't even get half of the response that we do. Yes. I mean, and it's even nonverbal. Yes. Yeah, it's nonverbal cues. It's you're not allowed to look a certain way. Oh, don't you? Uh, she rolled her neck. She rolled her eyes. It's like, seriously, can can we do anything? I know. And I get it all the time from other races. Oh, all for the 
time. For sure. For sure. And I think also using the word resilient, that is one of my favorite words to use to describe our community as a whole, but specifically black women, because Mm -hmm. we have to deal with that intersection of being black and then being a female, because those are two separate things that, you know, you have just all these words and microaggressions and things coming at you from all different areas, you know, dealing with being a female is one thing enough, but then having to be a black female, people don't understand black women truly are so unbelievably resilient, but, but we've never been given a choice. This is, Ooh, Ooh, Ooh. We've never been given a choice. Mm. We've never been given a choice, but to be, you either stay down or you get up and we've always chosen to get up. And we've had lots and countless women who have gotten up to show us what getting up will look like. And so even though we've made it far, we still have a long way to go, but it's going to continue to take all of us continuing to stand up because we've had a great example of what resilient looks like. Yes. So it's made us who we are. Yeah. You know, as a, cause you also are CEO of a business, correct? Yes. Four. So a, oh. <laughs> come on, come on. Look at that. See, we just talking about all this black excellence. Look at you. CEO of four businesses. You're a writer, all of these things. I have, oh my goodness, you are so inspired. But what are some of the challenges that you feel that you face specifically being a biz, a black business owner? You know, I talk about this all the time. It's understanding your worth Mm. and not discounting who you are. And, you know, I think we need to change that black business does not deserve real money or black money. And I say black money because people would rather get a discount from a black business, but won't go ask a white business for a discount. And so, you know, here again, something we need to normalize paying real prices for worth. Yes. You go out there and instead of buying a $30 t-shirt from me, that's made from from the exact same material as a designer and you go pay 800 for that shirt. Like really (laughs) a shirt that wasn't even made for our, our, our community. Yeah. But really quick to go pay $150 for a shirt, $350 for a pair of pants that's made from the same material. But because you're a black business, it's, it's, uh, can I get that for a discount? And I and I don't like that. So in over it's time, common. what happens? And I sh- yeah, yeah. But what happens is over time, if you continually discount, you can you go into a negative. Even if you become rich, you think about how many how many people you are continually discounting because the discounts sound good. And it's it, it's like, well, I'm getting a sale regardless, but you're hurting yourself financially mm-hmm. because you're giving all of these discounts, and so that at point blank your return on investment is not the same and so all money is not good money and if you can't pay my worth that's okay go go frequent another business whether they're white or black or whatever i'm just not going to discount myself and i've done that for a while and then it hit click i'm like i'm not doing i'm doing myself an injustice because i know my worth even in business i'm a business consultant and strategist because i write um i write a lot of content And so business plans and I write blogs and articles and oddly, most of my clients are international, not even domestic. A lot of people that I write blogs and whatnot for, and then I write media. But when it comes to that, they're like, oh, your business plans are too much, but you're going to spend 6,000 and then you don't even know what's in your business plan. It's just, it's it's the irony behind, you know, just being 
in business because they associate black business with being poor business or yes. having poor business practices. But I always say that if you have a negative experience with a black business, tell them, but tell them in private. No, no business owner I know, and you're a business owner. No business owner I know goes into business to fail. Correct. If it's legitimate, if it's legitimately set up and not a hobby that they're trying to make a business. Right. No business owner. So give a courtesy to say, you know what, here's a good idea about your business. Here's what I did not like. Here's instead of slamming that black business and then the, giving it the perception of something negative. But then you can go to a nail salon and have poor business after poor business after poor business. But guess what? You're going to keep going to that nail salon. Mm. It's just not fair. It's dis it's a dysfunctional way to operate, actually. It is. And it's also this idea of community that I think gets lost in translation a little bit, because while you want to support black businesses, and I'm talking about within our own community, right? Mm -hmm. want to support black businesses. When you talk about those discounts, there's this thought that like, hey, we're, you know, we're brother and sister. Like, let, can can you can you hook me up? And you know, on occasion, like you said, on occasion it's fine. But if you keep doing that, then it's, the business is not going to thrive. So we have to figure out how to support each other and let each other know what each other's worth is, because we are even subjected to having that mindset that black businesses are poor businesses. And if we aren't supporting each other as a community, nobody outside of our community is going to either. Yes. And I support, I do a lot where I support a lot of black businesses. Yeah, I make sure of it. I, I try to, and I, um, at least, you know, even if it's something that I, I don't need, it makes great gifts. Yes. And so I do try to support, you know, black businesses as much as I can. Do I always know, but, I also believe that money doesn't have color. So there's things mm -hmm. that I like and that I'm just going to frequent, but I do try my best to spend at least 60% of my, what I make or anything on black business. So you can explain because I have these conversations often and people don't understand why there is such a push to support black businesses. So from your vantage point, why do you think it is important to kind of give those black businesses a little bit more of a spotlight and a little bit more of an edge in your support? Oh, I can tell you, there's so many reasons. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, because, you know, if you look at that, I was watching the Black Wall Street documentary and that right there was a reason of excellence. And in order to be great, we need one another to be great. But we also, as a black business, you don't necessarily have to create for black people. You can create a very diverse business and, and a business model. But when it, how you spend your money is so important for how people treat you and care. Yeah. So I think that when I'd rather spend my money with someone who cares about spending money back. You know what I'm saying? It's like, let's pour into our community in order to grow our community. When you look at gentrification, gentrification happens because we're not supporting our community. Mm. Even, even if you say, well, I'm going to gentrify a neighborhood, I'm going to pour money in it. You can gentrify a neighborhood, not necessarily for the marginalized, but you can gentrify a neighborhood for the middle class, the middle upper class, the upper class of your own people. See, people forget about that. Yes, people I look at gentrification as just yep. moving out and, and, you know, for moving the marginalized out of the area. But if there's if there's lucrative money to be made, then make it. But make it for your people. Yeah. 
and and other people will then still you might get uh, it can be a multicultural area because the middle class and the upper middle class is very you know it's very diverse so you don't necessarily say well i don't want to i don't want to gentrify that because i can't get rid of people but then you have you know white men or um what is it um pakistani men or whoever otherworldly people come in and gentrify an area and you don't even get an opportunity to so yeah. you don't have you can build a community for your people yes. if you pour money back into it and you do create somewhat of i mean to me it's hard to recreate a black wall street because we are a cultural melting pot but at the same time i think helping small businesses thrive creates small businesses to, be, to become their own Amazons, to become their own Microsofts, to become their own Apple, to create generational wealth. And generational wealth is not just money, it's passing along knowledge that's going to continue to have our community grow. Yes. So when you pour into it and you support black business, that's exactly what you are doing. You are creating generational wealth, not just for, you know, for that, for that business, but for their kids and their kids and their kids and their kids. Yes. And I think the focus on generational wealth, that is something that I, I talk about often because I don't think so many people realize how the black community was essentially stripped of that. They're completely stripped of. I mean, we talk about Black Wall Street, but you look at the entire Red Summer, I think people don't even know how many black neighborhoods and, and businesses were actually burned down before Tulsa happened. They didn't exactly. they didn't want black people to thrive in any way, shape, or form. Black people were minding their own business. <laughs> they were minding their own business, right? And they got their their businesses burned down and their neighborhoods burned down. So that opportunity for generational wealth for the descendants of those people, which it, I shouldn't even say descendants because it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> people want to act like it was forever yeah. ago. But you know, so I think pouring money into black businesses is just giving the opportunity to create that, like you said, and it's super, super important. So I, I love that you say 60% of what you uh, purchase, it goes to black business. And I'm a huge huge advocate for supporting black businesses because it it's only gonna make our, our community stronger as a unit um oh i definitely yeah. agree and another thing that i know that you're passionate about that i also talk about so often is representation 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 <gasps> representation this is something that is very very dear to me and i'm actually very lucky even having grown up in a predominantly white neighborhood i grew up in a very pro-black family my mom specifically as an educator went out of her way to make sure my sister and i had black dolls had black books you know black authors that we went to black you know uh, church conferences like everything she just made sure we were exposed to our community and I now looking back and I'm so grateful that I had that because there are so many people that don't and you know being a 90s baby for example we had UPN we had the WB so I I'm lucky that I grew up seeing people that looked like me on television but that just kind of uh disintegrated over the years and a lot of people don't have that so why is representation so important and I want to talk about also the book that you, the book series that you've released that is focused on representation. So oh, sometimes I hate the word representation or it's not the word, it's the use of the word. I think that most people associate representation with skin color and representation really, truly to me is not about skin mm -hmm. color. It's about being able to have something that's going to truly culturally enrich you so that way, you know, you belong in places. 
And so that's why I built my series. It's about proper representation to show that it's not always about skin color. It's about how you feel on the inside. It's about your self-confidence. It's where you see yourself in places. It's, you know, just, it's more than, oh, represent for your hair or just because, you know, cultural misappropriation and all this stuff and whatnot yet, or cultural appropriation. All of those things are really good, but representation in and of itself is those things that we need to be working on because that provides cultural enrichment for our children, for, uh, you know, for us. And so that's the way that I see representation because a lot of times it's, oh, we need representation. Well, what does representation look like? I always ask that. What does it look like? What does it really mean? That one word doesn't, it's, it's very broad. Yeah. Yeah. It's very broad. And so I'm choosing to scale it back and say, you know what? I need to look at representation differently because I knew when I grew up, I didn't have like the WB, we didn't have all of that stuff. I mean, we had facts of life and, you know, Webster Mm -hmm. and different strokes and all of those things, but there was so, there was 15 to one program yeah. so you didn't have that level of exposure plus television went off <laughs> after a certain hour it was like uh, it, it, it just went to where you saw the little yeah. rainbow color things or just scrambled i grew up in the <laughs> 80s <laughs> so we didn't, it, it didn't have any of that so it, it was something different and unique for me when i look at representation and what made me when i even when i did the big chop uh in 2018 the representation, if I think of it the way everybody else thought of it, was not there mm. for me. But I'm I'm a I'm an adult now, and so I have to say, well, I can see people. I can put myself in places that for with people that look like me. But that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything to my enrichment. It doesn't mean anything to my network. It doesn't mean anything to my network. I can put myself and see a lot, but what can it do for me? That's what representation should Mm. mean. It's how can I be enriched? How can I be educated? How can I gain knowledge? How can I grow? How can I be inspired? And that has nothing to do with representation. That's about putting myself in places where people can lift me, pour into me. And and so just putting myself in a a place that just say, okay, I have all this representation. (laughs) In that aspect, does it make sense? No. What makes sense is what you're, what that, what's being represented. Mm-hmm. That's what yes, matters. It's not just having so a person I'm choosing that looks like you. It's what they're presenting. I get you exactly. And so that's the way that I created my book series. Mm-hmm. It's about real, authentic, you know, culturally enriching. A representation. I love it. And let's talk about the book series. Um, it's called Brown Girl, Brown Boy. And tell a little bit about the characters and maybe without giving away the books, I'm really excited to get it. I'm going to get it for my daughter. I can't wait to read it. But talk a little bit about it because I love the title. Well, they're out there. One of them is out. Well, two of them, because it's a 10 title, 20 book series that's going to be coming out over the next few years. It's it's so weird because when I chose to create Brown Girl and Brown Boy, I didn't want to give them names. I didn't think names was important. What was most important is that children see themselves or their likeness Uh or people like them in books. The whole purpose of my, of like the first one is uh, the brown girl and brown boy be social. I wanted to create books that say, that's going to teach kids how to be social, but it starts with them. 
I have in there, you know, just because people don't look like you. That's okay. You love who you are anyway. It's about building children from the inside and not focusing so heavy on the outside. But I do mention about loving your hair and loving your skin. But I also talk about exploring the world that's full of colors, taking everything in, seeing and recognizing how to be social with different people. And so I'm, I, when I've created this series, it, this was the first one because I needed people to teach their children how to be social, to be by themselves, to be with others. That's being social. I'm, I am social by myself. I can take myself out to dinner. <laughs> I can take myself to the movies. And a lot of, a lot of women cannot. Mm-hmm. A lot of men cannot. Yeah. If you can't be social with yourself, how can you be social with others? So I created this, the first one to be social. And then the second one I have here, that's, I just actually in LA, I did a reading and this was the first premiere of these two books because these were the samples that came in and it's so brown girl, brown boy break barriers. And as you see what they're, you know, they can dream to be anything they want, but I wanted them to see more than being a doctor, being a police officer. I wanted enriching things. So instead of a doctor, let's go higher, be a surgeon. Instead of instead of being a lawyer, go higher, be a judge. That's what you should strive for. You know, being a veterinarian, being a I have race car drivers, you know, just I wanted them to see themselves and also break some stereotypes. I have in there be a competitive yeah. swimmer. But you know the stereotype, not all black people yeah. can swim. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure that I create culturally enriching representation. Because it's not just representing, it's how. Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, Dr. Pamela Gurley, you are doing some incredible work. Can you please let everyone know where they can get your books and where they can follow you on social media? So you can follow me on social media at I-A-M-D-R-P-G-U-R-L-E-Y. I am Dr. P. Gurley. You can also follow the Brown Girl and Brown Boy series at Brown Girl, Brown Boy series on all the platforms as well. Facebook, Instagram, and uh, they're also on Twitter. I'm like myself. I am. I am Dr. P. Gurley everywhere, you know, including YouTube. You can get the books actually anywhere. Now, Brown Girl Break Barriers and Brown Boy Break Barriers, it releases September 3rd. You can get them um, um, from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, almost anywhere where platforms or books are sold. You can also get them on my website. It's www.unapologeticbydrg.com. And with that, I will say that that is the only place you can buy the set and get 20% off. So if you you want the set, I would recommend you going to my website and buying the set because you can't get the set. For some reason, I don't know why they don't sell a set. I will also put this tidbit out that as of August 1st and August 15th, you know, my books will be available in Spanish and French as well. Wonderful. Yes. So, and in September when the books, the next release come out, it will come out in Spanish, English, and French. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. It was wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. To the listeners, make sure you subscribe and we'll talk to you again real soon. Bye.